Welcome to the podcast of MotorWeek, television's original automotive magazine. Here's your MotorWeek podcast host, John Davis. Welcome, everyone, to our MotorWeek podcast number 32. I'm John Davis, and joining me in Studio C today is our road test producer, Brian Robinson. Glad to be here. Our chief rider, Shamit Choksi. Hello, John. And our associate producer and all-around great guy, Ben Davis. Hi, everybody. <laughs> and he's not related. Okay, coming up, we'll have our lightning round and our MotorWeek mailbag. But first, we're going to talk about some vehicles that we've had uh, either around our shop lately or we've had some recent experience with. And we're going to start with the all-new 2011 Toyota Sienna minivan. Okay, not the most exciting vehicle in the world, but still perhaps the most versatile. Brian Robinson, what do you think? Yeah, doing what we do and driving what we drive, it's hard to get jazzed up about a minivan. But you have to look at why you buy minivans, and that's practicality, roominess, easy to drive, and... Uh, you got to look for some features that maybe the other few minivans that they're out there uh, don't have. Uh, I always tell people minivans are by far the most practical vehicle out there. Tons of room, easy to drive, much better than most crossovers. Uh, what the Sienna hopes to bring is a little more style. They spent a lot of effort into uh, making it look crossoverish and not as minivanish. And uh, they got three different styles, basically like a base, like an LE. Uh, which is kind of basic, your XLE, which uh, can, can get a limited package, leather and wood and all the amenities, all-wheel drive even, which I think they're still the only minivan uh, all-wheel drive available. Yep. And then uh, like a sporty SE model with ground effects and uh, LED taillights and sporty-looking uh, interior. Uh, speaking of the interior, that's what it comes down to with minivans. It's really uh, well laid out and feels roomy. It's three different uh, second-row options. You can get... Uh, a captain's chairs, a bench uh, with a removable center section, and they even have these big uh, lounge chairs, uh, which have a big reclining feature, almost like a, uh, a recliner at your home. And also, they have a 16-inch wide fold-down video screen, which you can split into two screens, have a you know a video on one, and play games on the other to keep all your uh, backseat passengers happy. Any downside to it to the design? Uh, it looks very Venza-ish, basically, mm -hmm. uh, just a slightly overgrown Ven Venza. But uh, I think it looks good, it's as good as a minivan can look. Yeah, the only thing they don't have, I mean, I th agree with everything you said. Um, I think uh, two points. Number one, they've added a four-cylinder engine, uh, which is out of the Venza and the Highlander. And even though some people will think that's not enough power, if you don't need the V6 power, it's much better fuel economy. So that's a big deal. Uh, you can't get it with all-wheel drive, though, just front drive. And the other thing is, you know, I do, I, I do wish someone else could come up with the fold-into-the-floor center section seats, second-row seats that Chrysler uses. I still think that's the epitome of the idea. you got to take the seats out to load something big in it. It's still a pain in the neck, but I guess that patent hasn't run out or whatever. Well, the seats, the you know, those fold-in-the-floor seats aren't the most comfortable. Right. These are a lot more comfortable, but... Uh, even the space under there, even if they don't fold into the floor, if they could have that space there, that is a huge amount of space under the floor for storage when the seats are up. And that's something and, that Chrysler vans also do, even if they don't have fold-in-the-floor right, yeah, seats. That's the, even better than the fact that you can fold them in there, to me, is just having all that hidden space. And we should point out that the third-row seats do fold into the floor. In yeah, the and there's a power option. and. 
you know, all, you can get the side doors and the rear power as well. Thanks, Brian. Yeah. Let's move on now to our second vehicle. And we just came back from Roebling Road uh, in Savannah, where we had a chance to drive the Chevrolet Corvette Grand Sport. Let's turn to the other side of the table, the Ben and Shemit. You saw the car. You basically were there when we were putting it through its paces. What was your impression? It's hard not to get excited about a new Corvette, uh, however subtle the uh, the differences may be. Uh, it's great to see they're keeping the name around. It's been used uh, twice before in history, as you know, and um, it looks good, too. The badging, the packaging, not only is it the suspension uh, closer to the Z06, but there's a, a few subtle uh, visuals, too, that, that uh, tell you that it's a Grand Sport, which I think is pretty cool. Shamit, yeah. if you basically were someone that didn't own a Corvette, which uh, I am. Which I am. Yeah. What, <laughs> would you think? You know, I, I didn't think I paid you that much. Um, what's your impression of the improvements they made? Is it worth? It's about six grand more than a normal vet. Is it worth it? I, I mean, I think so. It closes the gap between the base vet and the Z06, and everybody wants a Z06. Just everybody can't afford a Z06. Uh, they took that Z51 package, basically, uh, which is a performance package, and they said, "Hey, let's." Let's bring the Grand Sport name back and make it into a model. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, Brian, I mean, you've driven normal vets on the track, and you've driven this on the track. How much of a difference did you find in the corners and, and just straight-up acceleration? Yeah, like you said, it's, it's definitely middle ground right in between the uh, basic vet and the Z06. Vets have always been easy cars to drive fast on the track. You get out there within a couple laps. Uh, you you know where it's at. You're just hammering it around, and very very good feedback, very rewarding driving experience. The it's got the 6.2 liter, the 8 430 horse, tons of power. The throttle pedal just has all kind of travel, and you keep expecting the power to run out, but it just doesn't. They just keep going. And I think with the GS package, they uh, added launch control. Yes. Which, as far as launch controls go, it's very easy to use. Some of them are. You got to get into all these menus and twist this knob and press this button. They just turn active handling on and put in first gear and go. And it worked but every time. It, it, did, it did work, but it wasn't the best as far as uh, it wasn't easy to get a better time without it. I mean, it's, hmm. it's very, it launches very gently. I mean, you can launch it much harder without it and, and get a be, uh, better time. But shifter is awesome. Brakes worked, held up all day. Um, as far as gripes, you know, I hate to uh, beat the dead horse of the interior. But man, you get in, you know, you get in a car that you just spend fifty thousand dollars on, and you sit down, and you go to adjust the seat, and you do it gingerly because you, the handle feels like it's going to break off in your hand, and you're on the track and you're sliding all over the seats. They have like no side bolstering, but you know that's really my only gri- gripes with the car. Hmm. It's easily forgivable though once you start. Uh Still the best performance bargain out there. Start factoring bang for buck. But, you know, it's time probably GM has made such huge strides in their interiors in the last three or four years. I think it's time that this car gets a new interior, and I guess it will be with the next generation vet, but that's still a couple years away. Mm -hmm. So. That's one thing I, I wish that, that GM did um, to their interiors. You know, Porsche basically keeps revising their interiors, even though the, the vehicle is going to be changing the next year. And I'd like to see more of that with the domestic, especially with the Corvette. After all, it's low enough volume, they should be able to do it. Okay, speaking of Chevrolet, we have two Chevrolets on the um, podcast today. The other is the Chevrolet Volt. And I'll take the lead on this one because I finally uh, recently got a chance to drive a Volt that is near production. Now, for those of you that 
or haven't been on this planet in the last couple of years. Chevrolet Volt is this uh, new uh, vehicle from Chevrolet that is an extended range electric car or an advanced hybrid, depending on what you want to call it. It uses a lithium ion battery that powers electric motor, a big electric motor that drives the wheels. But while that'll give you about 40 miles of range on electric alone, uh, there's a gas engine, a 1.4-liter Ecotec engine, that will crank up and act only as a generator to provide additional power when the batteries are depleted. So you've actually got a range on this vehicle of over 300 miles if you've got a full gas tank, mm-hmm. uh, which is pretty impressive. Now, we've driven a mule that had the electric part of the powertrain in it, but this was the first time we drove a real car. It looks like a real Volt. The, you know, the design was there. Uh, they were still tweaking things like the uh, some of the displays and the noises that the vehicle makes. But a four-passenger, four, not five, four-passenger midsize sedan. The battery runs down the center of the vehicle, so that's why you don't have a fifth seat in the back. So loses a little bit in uh, functionality. But otherwise, drove like a very, very competent family car. Uh, Because the battery gives it a low center of gravity, the car felt extremely uh, secure in corners, much more so than I expected. Uh, Of course, with the electric powertrain, it accelerated not only smoothly, but quite fast. Uh, I'm guessing 0 to 60 around 8 seconds. Um, In corners, there was very little lean. You did hear the gas engine when it started. Interesting, we had been, up to this point, we've all been surmising that the gas engine would stay pretty much in a very narrow RPM range. However, what it does is because the gas engine is providing power directly to the electric motor, not necessarily to charge the battery, the gas engine does increase in throttle, does increase in speed when you want to go faster when the electric motor needs more power. Makes sense. The generator's got to run faster when you want more power from the electric motor. So you do have the gas engine running in a fairly narrow but not necessarily constant state band. So you do hear the gas engine increase when it's running when you apply the pedal. However, for most people that drive it back and forth to work, the gas engine will probably only start to make sure that it will start in maintenance mode or um, maybe on the way home when you're getting close to depleting the battery. I should point out that you never completely deplete the battery. It only goes down about 50%. And then you can charge it in overnight. Uh, it'll charge into a normal 110 outlet. And they now have agreed, all the electric companies and manufacturers have agreed to the same plug uh, so that no matter where you go in the U.S. that will have a charging station, um, it will match up. Uh, it, you can even tell the car uh, not to start charging until late at night if your rates go down after midnight or something. So it's a fairly smart car, too. I was pretty impressed. Forty grand sounds like a lot of money, but with the tax incentives, it'll probably be closer to 30. We have $30,000 family cars in here routinely. So for um, folks in California and Washington, where it will go on sale first at the end of this year, uh, if you're into green motoring and want to try the latest technology, 
uh, it looks pretty darn good at this point. So if if you work within 15 or 20 miles of your, your house... Which is, the th- which is most people apparently and it, do. And then this is your commuter car, then you may never have to buy a drop, put a drop of gas in this thing. Is that that's, correct? that's correct. Now, the engine wheel does have a maintenance mode, so periodically it will start. Right. And it will basically, uh, you know, make sure that everything is checking out right. But it does sound like that if you're just going to use it around town or commuting... A tank of gas may last a long time, which one of the GM technicians told me that meant that we had to work very hard on understanding how gas ages and whether that's going to have an effect on the fuel systems Hmm. and so forth. Uh, They feel pretty confident that the fuel will be uh, okay because apparently the tank, I think I've got this right, the tank is a sealed fuel system. It doesn't breathe. And when fuel is in and when gasoline is in a fueled system, they, in a sealed system, they said, it will last a lot longer before going stale. Hmm. Uh, we probably won't have a chance to actually put one to a real test until either late this year or early next. But my impression was they've done a good job. Uh, of course, they're very worried about anything going wrong that will taint the vehicle. But, uh, you know, you get inside, it's got touch-sensitive controls and big screens to tell you when you're driving properly and, of course, air conditioning and good stereo and all the stuff you expect in a, uh, a family car. Could you get a legitimate 40 miles on electric alone, or is it kind of like hybrids where they say you can do 40 miles an hour before the gas engine comes on, but it takes a lot of concentration to actually drive it like that? I mean. I'm sure it's going to be temperature and road dependent, mm-hmm. uh, that if you basically are under ideal conditions, you can probably do 40. Most people probably won't do 40. I envision that most people on the way home, assuming they haven't plugged it in while they're at work, you know, they'll probably get halfway home and the gas engine will start to get them the rest of the way. Mm-hmm. Everybody's sort of wondering what the uh, new EPA fuel economy rules will be uh, applying to vehicles like this. Will this be the first 100 mile? per gallon gasoline a vehicle you can buy or, or will someone else beat them to the punch who knows uh, it should be one of the first plug-in vehicles though not maybe not the first since I think um, uh, um, one of the small manufacturers might beat them to the punch on that mm-hmm. uh, but overall I would say you probably could drive most of the way to work and back uh, on electric power and so. once the gas engine kicks on, like how approximately how long does it take? How long does it run before your batteries are charged? That's that's a very interesting question. The gas engine actually originally we all were told that the gas engine would charge the battery and then you would be able to drive with it. That's not the way it works. Yeah. A little bit of the power from the gas engine will go to the power, but most of it goes directly to the engine instantaneously. Huh. So as soon as the gas engine starts, it's supplying power to the electric motor. Mm. So you never go back to electric mode. Uh, you don't go back to electric mode until you've either plugged to you've plugged it in to charge yeah, it again. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, that's uh, once the battery is depleted. The way I understand it, even though the battery is probably getting a little bit from the generator, you would have to plug it in to recharge the battery. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, that could be that if you go across country or something, it's different. But uh, it sounds like that the plug in is how you really recharge the battery. Mm-hmm. A complicated car, obviously two powertrains, two cooling systems, uh, one just for the batteries. Uh, The interior heater will be both electric and will use engine heat as well when the engine's running, when the gas engine's running. Uh, And air conditioning is obviously uh, uh, an electric system. I think everybody's rooting for this car. I mean, if GM can pull this off, I think it's going to be... 
good for them and good for everybody. Yeah, and if they don't, I think it says a lot of bad things about not just GM but the whole U.S. auto right. industry. But So we all got our fingers crossed. So far, they seem to be taking it uh, measured, and uh, the car I drove was pretty impressive. Okay, now let's move on to our Motor Week mailbag. Now, um, actually, I, I'm sorry. Let's stop and, and go back around, and I forgot the lightning round. We can't forget the lightning round. Because that also has a lot to do, our question on this podcast has a lot to do with the state of the business right now, and of which the Volt will be uh, one of the determiners. Um, Here we go. Car makers have been revising the last few weeks their projections for how many cars and trucks they're going to sell for 2010. They had a very good January, at least the domestics did. Um, most everybody has said, well, we thought we were going to sell about $10.5 million. Now we may be selling about eleven point five to maybe even twelve. Gee, that sounds pretty optimistic. What do you guys think? Do you think we're going to see about 10 to 15% more cars sold in 2010 than we did in 2009? I mean, I think it's realistic. I don't think it's uh, – it probably won't be the case. 10 to 15% seems like a number that will be uh, – another a year or two away um, but uh, really I mean even a three to five percent increase right now would be an increase it would be uh, uh, indicating that things are turning around and going in the right direction anybody else it's so hard to guess I mean it really is all it is to guess it it wouldn't take much for you know the Dow to have a couple bad days for everyone you know gas prices to go up another dollar so I, I think we'll definitely increase I think 10 percent might be a little bit of a high number Ben um, I, I'm obviously no expert in automotive business on the business end, but I think 10% is a, a little fetching. But, I mean, I can see where, where car makers um, would be looking for 10%. Everybody's putting so much more effort into their product that they're probably a little frustrated that uh, just just the updates in their products alone haven't uh, vetted them an extra 10%. There's a lot of pent-up demand. I, I think uh, a lot of it's going to determine on um, when we start seeing that unemployment rate come down a little bit from 10%. If, you know, if it gets down to around 9 you know, I think people will start feeling a lot more confident uh, if we don't have a, a lot of huge layoffs later this year. So um, it's certainly a goal. Uh, I hope we get there. I mean, I hope, I'm op- like to be optimistic. Well, they do, too. I mean, it's good that they're putting optimism in the air. So. Okay. Let's, uh, speaking of optimism, let's see if we can uh, make, uh, our, uh, make Pat from Massachusetts optimistic about uh, his uh, car problem. This is our chance uh, to go into the MotorWeek mailbag. And, by the way, if you've got a question that you'd like to submit for a future podcast, go on to our website at www.motorweek.org. Submit your question. If you're chosen, you will receive a free MotorWeek T-shirt. And Pat asked... I feel my car shaking at the steering wheel when I'm driving at high speeds. Do I need to rotate my tires? If so, how often should that be done? Okay. Well, I'm not sure rotating your tires is going to solve that problem. It sounds more like an alignment issue, but you should definitely rotate your tires. I rotate mine uh, every 5,000 miles, and uh, I think it helps with uh, wear. I got over 70,000 miles on a set of Michelins on my wife's uh, SUV. So uh, I think you should definitely rotate your tires. Anybody else? Yeah, there could be a, a couple of different factors affecting you, uh, Pat. Um, it could be a balancing. It could be you know, the uh, physical nature of your tire in general is compromised somehow. I mean, uh, 
definitely further inspection of the tires needs to be taken. Could be out of round. Yeah, good call. Yeah. Tires do occasionally go bad, yeah. Yeah. Throw a belt or something. Yeah. Yeah. So I was thinking it could be if it's the tires themselves, it's not rotating them, it's maybe replacing them. Yeah, I think you have to sort of, um, I think the, the advice you gave about rotating is a good one. Some people will tell you rotate tires, you know, every time you change your oil, some say 10,000 miles. Uh, the, the value of rotating your tires is that uh, they obviously all wear down at the same time, and it also ensures that, it, Pat didn't say, but uh, if he's got front-wheel drive, it ensures that you've got good tread uh, on your front uh, drive wheels uh, and for directional stability. I sounds to me like uh, the issue is either um, uh, balancing of the tires or it is uh, the tire or he needs an alignment. Uh, I guess I would try balancing first because it's less expensive. And there, you really want to get the uh, tire balancing done to a fine degree. So uh, query the uh, tire shop or the repair shop about how they do their balancing, um, how close do they check it. Uh, If you want more information on that, you can go to our MotorWeek website and check out what Pat Goss has to say uh, about balancing tires. Uh, As far as the alignment, you want to make sure that you get a four-wheel alignment, not just the front wheels. That could indeed be your problem. But generally, if you start feeling shaking in the steering wheel, uh, you should also see the tires wearing, you know, and it's an alignment problem. You should see some un, uh, uh, unjustified wear on your tires, and Pat didn't mention that. So definitely, you know, rotate the tires, have them rebalanced, and check the alignment. Also, in regards to rotating tires, uh, you know, if you've got anything performance-related, usually you can't rotate. You know, uh, they'll have front oh, rear specific, and some are even left and right specific. And also, if you've got a, like an SUV or crossover with a full size spare, you know, throw that into the rotation every time. That way, you're going to get more mileage out of all your tires. And also, you're going to ensure that your spare tire is inflated because I'm sure the vast majority of people never check the inflation of their spare tire. And you hit on something else there, Brian. If you have any vehicle that's got all-wheel drive or four-wheel drive on it, if you've got an automatic system, which almost all the systems uh, are these days where you don't do anything, it's just there when you need it, if you don't rotate your tires and you have tires in the front that have a lot less tread, say, than the tires in the back, you can do serious damage to the all-wheel drive system and cost yourself lots and lots of thousands of dollars in repairs. So um, don't let your tires go more than 10,000 or so miles without doing a rotation. Okay? Mm -hmm. All right. Well, that brings us uh, to the end of our MotorWeek podcast number 32. As always, I'd like to thank uh, Brian Robinson, Shamid Choksi, and Ben Davis for all of their expert uh, contributions. Uh, Back in the back, our audio engineer, Jim Bigwood, that makes sure that we sound uh, clear and that you actually hear us. Our podcast creator, Bob Mixter. And, of course, the lady with the bell, Michelle Parker. Our producer, who once again has made sure that we um, hear from all you folks out there and we're able to answer your questions and uh, you know give you comments that we hope uh, enlighten you a little bit further. Uh, otherwise, uh, what do we say, guys? Make sure everybody watches us on Motor Week on your local public television station, and we'll be back soon with another Motor Week podcast. Check See us out. You have been listening to the podcast of Motor Week, television's original automotive magazine. For additional information on podcasts, videos, and showtimes, visit our website at motorweek.org.
and watch Motor Week, television's longest-running automotive magazine series, each week on your local PBS station.